and enlightenment is the full comprehension of a situation. It translates several Buddhist terms and concepts, most notably bodhi, plus the Japanese Buddhist terms kensho and satori. Related terms from Asian religions are kavalya and moksha, i.e. liberation, in Hinduism, kavalajana in Jainism, and pushta in Zoroastrianism. In Christianity, the word enlightenment is rarely used, except to refer to the age of enlightenment and its influence on Christianity. It is this age in Europe that we will tackle on this podcast episode. The age of enlightenment is also known as the age of reason. The word reason is the capacity of consciously applying logic by drawing conclusions from new or existing information with the aim of seeking the truth. Ah, that wonderful word, the truth. Truth is typically given to things that aim to represent reality or otherwise correspond to it. As you know, and I believe, truth, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. Even eyewitness accounts can be completely made up. So, what could be true? Well, in my view, nothing is true. Technically, everything is a story. So what is the story for the Age of Enlightenment? At the end of the day, the Enlightenment was an intellectual and philosophical movement in Europe, mostly in the 1700s. The Enlightenment included a bunch of ideas centered on some extremely lofty stuff. If you are French, American, or from a Western country, some of this may sound familiar. This included things like the pursuit of happiness, the importance of reason, and the evidence of the senses as primary sources of knowledge. Knowledge. Plus, they had lofty ideas such as liberty, progress, toleration, fraternity, constitutional government, and the separation of church and state. The Enlightenment has roots in a European, a fundamentally European intellectual and scholarly movement known as Renaissance Humanism. Very broadly, the project of the Italian Renaissance Humanists of the 14th and 15th centuries was the study of the humanities. What are the humanities? They are an academic discipline that studies aspects of human society and culture. Outside the study of the humanities was the scientific revolution, which was actually a series of events in Europe that marked the emergence of modern science thinking in Europe at the time. Clever developments in science included maths, physics, astronomy, biology, and chemistry transforming the way people looked at society and nature at the time. Some date the beginning of the Enlightenment back to René Descartes in 1637. However, I believe that that date is way, way, way too early. I agree with many European historians who traditionally state the date 
as beginning with around the death of Louis XIV of France in 1715, right up until this outbreak of the French Revolution in 1789. Philosophers and scientists and other thinking type elites of the period widely circulated their ideas through meetings at scientific academies, messianic lodges, literary salons, coffee houses, and in printed books, journals, and pamphlets. The ideas of the Enlightenment undercut the authority of the monarchy as well as the Catholic Church, thus paving the way for the political revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries. A variety of 19th century movements, including liberalism, communism, and neoclassicism, trace their intellectual heritage to the Enlightenment era thinking. In France, the central doctrines of the Enlightenment philosophers were individual liberty and religious tolerance, in opposition to an absolutist monarchy and the fixed dogmas of the Church. The Enlightenment was marked by an emphasis on the scientific method and what philosophers regard as reductionism, along with the increased questioning of religious orthodoxy. Enlightenment thought was deeply influential in the political realm as well. European rulers such as Catherine II of Russia, Joseph II of Austria, and Frederick II of Prussia tried to apply Enlightenment thought on religious and political tolerance, which ultimately became known as Enlightened Absolutism. An enlightened absolutist is a non-democratic or authoritarian leader who exercises their political power based upon the principles of the Enlightenment. So-called self-styled enlightened monarchs distinguished themselves from ordinary rulers by claiming to rule for their subjects' well-being. But the Age of Enlightenment or this Age of Reason was fundamentally a philosophical event. And I want to look at the main thinkers of the late 1600s and the 1700s. Earlier philosophers whose work influenced the Enlightenment, including Descartes, as I mentioned, but also Francis Bacon. Let's start with Francis Bacon. He was an English philosopher who also served up as Attorney General and Lord Chancellor of England. His works are seen as developing the scientific method and remained influential through the scientific revolution. Bacon has been called the father of empiricism. Empiricism is a theory that states that knowledge comes only from primary or sensory experience. He argued for the possibility of scientific knowledge based only upon inductive reasoning and careful observation of events in nature. Most importantly, he argued science could be achieved using a skeptical and methodological approach whereby scientists aim to avoid misleading themselves. Then there's René Descartes, who was a French philosopher, a mathematician and scientist who invented analytic geometry, linking the previously separated fields of geometry and algebra. Descartes has often been labelled the father of modern philosophy and is seen as responsible for the increased attention given to epistemology. 
Epistemologists study the nature, origin, and scope of knowledge. Debate in epistemology centers around four core areas. One, the philosophical analysis of nature of knowledge and the conditions required for a belief to constitute knowledge such as truth and justification. Two, potential sources of knowledge and justified belief such as perception, reason, memory, and testimony. Three, the structure of a body of knowledge or justified belief, including whether all justified beliefs must be derived from justified foundational beliefs or whether justification requires only a coherent set of beliefs. And number four, philosophical skepticism, which questions the possibility of knowledge and related problems such as whether skepticism poses a threat to our ordinary knowledge, claims, and whether it is possible to refute skeptical arguments. Our next person is Césaire Beccaria, who was from Lombard, Lombard being in modern Italy. He was a criminologist, jurist, philosopher, and politician. These guys have multiple hats. He is known for his paper called on Crimes and Punishments, which was released in 1764. It condemned torture and the death penalty and was a founding work in the field of penology and the classical school of criminology. He is credited for developing modern European criminal law. He openly condemned the death penalty on two grounds. One, because the state does not possess the right to take lives and number two, because capital punishment is neither a useful nor a necessary form of punishment. Beccaria developed in his treatise several innovative and influential principles. For example, punishment has a preventative deterrent, not a distributive function. Another one, punishment should be proportionate to the crime that was committed. High probability of punishment, not its severity, will achieve preventative effect. Procedures of criminal convictions should be public. And finally, to be effective, punishment should be prompt. He also argued against gun control laws. Yes, so for all the American listeners listening, he was against gun control laws. This is where it starts. And finally, he was also advocating the benefits of education in lessening crime. Next up, Denis Diderot. Diderot was a French philosopher, art critic, and writer, known best for serving as co-founder, chief editor, and contributor to the Encyclopedia. This was the first encyclopedia to include contributions from many named contributors, and the first to describe the mechanical arts. Its secular tone that included articles skeptical about biblical miracles angered both religious and governmental authorities. Indeed, in 1758, it was banned by the Catholic Church, and in 1759, the French government banned it as well. Although this ban was not strictly enforced, however, Many of the initial contributors to the encyclopedia left the project because of its controversies 
and some were even jailed. Then there was David Hume. Hume was a Scottish philosopher. He was also a historian, an economist, and least famously, he also happened to be a librarian. Starting with a treatise of human nature, Hume tried to create a naturalistic science of man that examined the psychological basis of human nature. Hume argued against the existence of innate ideas, suggesting instead that all human knowledge derives solely from experience and not a preordained knowledge base. One of my favorite ideas from Hume is this, that he argued that indicative reasoning and belief in casuality cannot be justified rationally. Instead, they result from custom and mental habit. We never actually perceive that one event causes another, but only experienced the constant conjunction of events. This problem of induction means that to draw any casual inferences from experience, it is necessary to presuppose that the future will resemble the past, a presupposition which cannot itself be grounded in prior experience. Interestingly, Hume also denied that humans have actual conception of the self, suggesting that we experience only a bundle of sensations and that the self is nothing more than this bundle of casually connected perceptions. Hume's theory of free will takes casual determination as fully compatible with human freedoms. Then there was Immanuel Kant. He was a German philosopher. Kant's comprehensive and systematic thinking in epistemology, metaphysics, ethics, and aesthetics have made him one of the most influential figures in modern Western philosophy, and certainly one of my own favorites. In his doctrine of transcendental idealism, Kant argued that space and time are mere forms of intuition, which structure all experience, and therefore that while all things in themselves exist and contribute to experience, they are nonetheless distinct forms of object of experience. From this, it follows that the objects of experience are mere appearances and that the nature of things as they are in themselves is consequently unknowable to us. He believed that reason is also the source of morality and that aesthetics arise from a faculty of disinterested judgments. He attempted to explain the relationship between reason and human experience and to move beyond what he believed to be the failures of traditional philosophy and metaphysics. He wanted to put an end to what he saw as an era of futile and speculative theories of human experience. Kant was an exponent of the idea that perpetual peace could be secured through universal democracy and international cooperation. In theory and technically by his own words, he was the world's first elitist globalist. Anyhow, before moving on to the next thinker in Enlightenment land, Europe, we need to understand what all these terms actually are. Epistemology has some central concepts. One is knowledge. Most generally, knowledge is a familiarity, an awareness, or understanding of someone 
or something, which might include facts, skills, or objects. Another is belief. A belief is an attitude that a person holds regarding anything that they may take to be true. So God is false and God is true. Both are beliefs. The next tenant is truth. Truth is the property or state of being in accordance with facts or reality. And as I had mentioned earlier, it's in the eye of the beholder. Finally, justification. Justification is the reason that someone holds a rationally admissible belief on the assumption that it is a good reason for holding it. What then is metaphysics? Metaphysics is the branch of philosophy that, in my view, is the most interesting branch. This studies the first principles of being, identity, and change, space and time, casuality, necessity, and possibility. It includes questions about the nature of consciousness and the relationship between mind and matter. The word metaphysics itself comes from Greek words that together mean after or behind or among the study of the natural. Metaphysics studies questions related to what is for something to exist and what types of existence there are. Metaphysics seeks to answer in an abstract and fully general manner two questions. What is out there and what is it like? Ethics. Ethics seeks to resolve questions of human morality by defining concepts such as good and evil, right and wrong, virtue and vice, justice and crime. Then there's aesthetics. Aesthetics deals with the nature of beauty and taste, as well as the philosophy of art. It examines aesthetic values often expressed through judgments of taste. Okay, so moving on to the next lofty thinking enlightenment chap. That would be Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, who was a German polymath, active as a mathematician, a philosopher, scientist, and a diplomat. He is a prominent figure in both the history of philosophy and the history of mathematics. In philosophy and theology, Leibniz is most noted for his optimism, i.e. his conclusion that our world is, in a qualified sense, the best possible world that God could have created, a view sometimes lampooned by other thinkers. His philosophy also assimilates elements of the scholastic tradition, notably the assumption that some substantive knowledge of reality can be achieved by reasoning from the first principles or prior definitions. The work of Levine's anticipated modern logic and it still influences contemporary analytic philosophy, such as its adopted use of the term, the words, possible world, to define modal notations. His interest in God, maths, and his multidisciplinary approach to European thought, to me, makes him unique in his perspectives. Then we have John Locke, who was an English philosopher and physician. I already did a podcast on the rise and fall of liberalism in episode 31 that you should all check out. But Mr. Locke is considered the so-called father of liberalism. Locke is also important 
to social contract theory. The social contract is a theory or model and it usually concerns the legitimacy of the authority of the state over the individual. Social contract arguments typically poist that individuals have consented either explicitly or tacitly to surrender some of their freedoms and submit to the authority of their ruler or to the decision of the majority in exchange for protection of their remaining rights or maintenance of the social order. Locke's theory of mind is often cited as the origin of modern conceptions of identity and the self, figuring prominently in the work of later philosophers such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau, David Hume and Immanuel Kant. Locke was the first to define the self through a continuity of consciousness. He argued that at birth the mind was a blank slate. Our next philosopher is Charles Louis Baron of Montesquieu, generally referred to simply as Montesquieu. He was a French judge, a man of letters, a historian and a political philosopher. He is the principal source of the theory of separation of powers which is implemented in many constitutions throughout the world today. He is also known for doing more than any other author to secure the place of the word despotism in the political lexicon. His anonymously published The Spirit of Laws in 1748, which was received well in both Britain and American colonies, influenced the founding fathers of the United States in drafting the U.S. Constitution. Then we have Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who is a Genevan philosopher, writer, and composer. His political philosophy influenced, among many other things, one of the single biggest earthquakes in human political history, the French Revolution. His discourse on inequality and the social contract are cornerstones in modern political and social thought. In addition, his book, Emilie, or On Education, in 1762, is an educational treatise on the place of the individual in society. But what is Romanticism? Romanticism was characterized by its emphasis on emotion and individualism, as well as the glorification of all the past and nature, preferring the medieval rather than the classical. The movement emphasized intense emotion as an authentic source of aesthetic experience placing new emphasis on such emotions as fear, horror, and terror, and awe, especially that experienced in confronting the new aesthetic categories of the sublime and the beauty of nature. Rousseau and Voltaire, in my view, are the names you automatically think of when thinking about the Enlightenment, which brings us to Voltaire. François-Marie Arrault, known by his pen name, Voltaire was a French writer, historian, and philosopher, famous for his wit, his criticism of Christianity, especially the Roman Catholic Church, as well as his advocacy of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and separation of church and state. He adopted the name Voltaire in 1718, following his incarnation at the Bastille. Voltaire was a versatile and prolific writer, producing works in every literary form including plays, poems, novels, essays, histories, and scientific expositions. He wrote more than 20,000 letters and 2,000 books and pamphlets. 
Intriguingly, Voltaire was one of the first authors to be commercially successful internationally. He was an outspoken advocate of civil liberties and was at constant risk from the strict censorship laws of the Catholic French monarchy. That brings us to the next chap, Adam Smith. Smith was a Scottish thinker, also known as the father of economics or the father of capitalism. Smith wrote two classic works, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, 1759, and An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, 1776. This last one was just abbreviated to The Wealth of Nations. By the way, I have done some prior podcasts on capitalism and Smith. Go check it out. Smith laid the foundations of classical free market economic theory. The Wealth of Nations was a precursor to the modern academic discipline of economics. In this and other works, he developed the concept of division of labor and expounded upon how rational self-interest and competition can lead to economic prosperity. Smith was controversial even in his own day. I have two more thinkers for you. One, the first one, is Hugo Grotius, who was a Dutch humanist, a diplomat, lawyer, theologian, jurist, poet, and playwright. Yes, one of those multidisciplinary guys. He laid the foundation for what we may consider international law, but it was based on natural law from its Protestant side. Two of his books have had a lasting impact in the field of international law. One was on the law of war and peace that he actually dedicated to Louis XIII of France, and the other one was the Free Seas. Grotius also contributed significantly to the evolution of the notion of rights. You see, before him, rights were above all perceived as attached objects. After him, they are seen as belonging to persons, as the expression of an ability to act or as a means of realizing something. Rights. Well, what are rights? Rights are legal, social, or ethical principles of freedom or entitlement. That is, rights are the fundamental normative rules about what is allowed of people or owned to people according to some legal system or the other, social conventions, or ethical theories. Rights, it is believed, are fundamental to any civilization and the history of social conflicts is often bound up with attempts to both define and to redefine those rights. Bringing us to our final candidate, Broch de Spinoza, who was a Dutch philosopher of Portuguese Shepardi Jewish origin. One of the early thinkers of the Enlightenment and modern biblical criticism, including modern conceptions of the self and the universe. He developed highly controversial ideas regarding the authenticity of the Hebrew Bible and the nature of the divine. Jewish religious leaders, issued a hurry against him, causing him to be effectively expelled and shunned by Jewish society at the age of just 23, including, by the way, by his own family. His books were later added to the Catholic Church's Index of Forbidden Books. He was frequently called an atheist by contemporaries, although nowhere in his work does Spinoza argue against the existence of God. Ideas, ideas, Ideas. These ideas 
and the political events in the 1700s contributed to so many things. These enlightenment ideas, something from the age of reason, it ultimately created the United States, the French Revolution, the revolutions of the 1800s. And just think about this for a minute. Because of European colonialism and imperialism, the Europeans were able to superimpose these ideas onto so many other parts of the planet. A lot of these big ticket events, such as the French Revolution or the creation of the United States, didn't happen in a vacuum. The people doing them didn't just show up with the ideas. They were influenced strongly by these Enlightenment thinkers and theorists. France and the United States, to me especially, are two entities that are a reflection of the Enlightenment itself. They are essentially a product of the Enlightenment. If you look at the US Constitution, for example, it seems to be a Bible of the Enlightenment. The question we may want to ask ourselves, are those ideas now too old? Do we need to replace them? Well, we did with Marx, we did with communism, we did with others. Do we need to replace those too? You have been listening to the Alternative History Podcast. Thank you once again for taking the time to listen.